Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Today, we're joined by a Hawthorne Premiership player and best and fairest winner and a two-time All-Australian. Ben Allen was a star of the competition in the early 90s, a proud West Australian who would become a WA Hall of Famer. He returned home to become the inaugural captain of the Fremantle Dockers in 1995. Ben, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Sam. Good to, good to be here, mate. Have a chat. Where do we find you at the moment? I'm over in the West. Yeah, so, yeah, nice sunny and, um, you know, the the finals are just upon us. I know the WA uh, AFL teams aren't in it, but the Waffles in in full swing. So, yeah, it's just that time of the year when it's changing and you want to be out there having a kick. Magnificent, is it what? And what keeps you busy? You're not having a kick anymore, of course, but I imagine family, (laughs) work, any coaching? No, I kind of stopped the coaching um, a couple of years ago but I, I coached all my young lads just as they were coming up through the ranks and now I've uh, I found myself a, a position as an official photographer in uh, in a couple of the, the teams that the lads are playing in so that's about it <laughs> right and what do you do for a for a job I think you're in wine wholesale there for a while weren't you is that still the case yeah yeah no we've been I've been in wine wholesaling for um, yeah, well, since I stopped uh, coaching back in 98, so what's that, 23 or 4 years, and we've got a family vineyard down in Market River, Rosalie Vineyard, which oh. is part of our wholesale uh, lineup. so that's getting cornflakes on the tables for the lads. <laughs> Fantastic. Can we get that over on the east coast over here? I assume we can. No, we're a bit selfish over here, as you know, the WA lads. We we actually sell probably 85% of Rosalie in WA, and we've got a great distributor in New South Wales, and uh, the rest is just direct sale, so unfortunately not not into Melbourne too much. Disgraceful. Hey, um, it's, it's when I think of you, and I know you, you get this a lot, but when I think of you, I think of that good nest of hair that was your trademark. You still got that uh, big mop on top? Well, it's a mop. It's probably not as long as it as it was, um, yeah, in, in the early 90s. But, um, yeah, it's good because I don't pay too much for haircuts. A couple of the curls sort of uh, get out of kilter and I just whip them off myself, so I've saved myself a fortune. <laughs> your name obviously <laughs> lives on as it should um, in that part of the world specifically, 
because your name was added to the Glendening Allen medal in 2018. So the two inaugural captains of the two sides in WA, of course, yourself and Ross, I, I imagine that's just a great legacy for you to have. Yeah, that, that was a great honour. And there was, there was, I guess there was a bit of controversy at the start, given uh, it had been the Glendening medal uh, for such a long time. But um, I was happy that someone from Fremantle be recognised. It didn't have to be me. It was great that, that I I have been you know awarded that accolade. But um, I was just as happy for it to be Dale Kickett or Matthew Pavlich. But I think it's it's fair enough that yeah it is a it, there is the two names there a Fremantle person and, and a West Coast Eagles person. And um, I guess it's good synergy there that we just happen to be the two uh, the two initial captains of both teams. And I think Ross was uh, correct me if I'm wrong an idol of yours growing up. He he famously overruled the voting panel in 2003 to give. <laughs> the medal to Michael Gardner. I think he said bugger it, I'm going with Gardner. Uh, have you ever been tempted to do that, Benny? Well, I've only, yeah, well, I think since that time, I actually was calling that game um, on on telly at the time and I must. I remember myself and Dennis were, were rabbiting on about how influential Michael Gardner had been, even though actually Sampy, had, I think he'd kicked four or five goals. It was obviously a good player a good player but halfway down the stands when Ross was about to award the medal he, he crossed out Sampy and wrote down Michael Gardner so I think since that time I don't know if you guys have been involved in voting in sort of Norm Smith or Simpson medals over in the West Australia but you, you kind of get the tap on the shoulder at the 10 minute mark of the last quarter mm. and if it's a close game it, it is it is uh, there is a bit of bit of pressure there so I think taking it out of Ross and my hands was uh, a, a very smart decision and it was great that the other day that young Caleb Sarong had uh, he had an outstanding game and I think was universally best on ground. So that was the first time I'd, I had awarded the, the medal to a, a Fremantle docker. So that was pleasing. Oh, that's beautiful. Hey, let's rewind. Before, let's go back before we go forward again, Ben. Where, where was the family home as a kid? Uh, we grew up in Dalkeith. So uh, even though the old man himself grew up in, in Frio, he liked to think himself as a little, little Aussie battler. And uh, yeah, we were, so we were all part of the, the Claremont Footy Club zone uh, living by the river there it was great fun. And what did a young Ben Allen get into? Before we get to the footy, what were you like as a little tacker? Oh, mate, we, we're from WA. We do everything. You, <laughs> you, you, um, you, you swim, you surf, you play water polo, you play golf. I remember when I uh, did move, and I don't want to jump the gun, but I did, we were doing some swimming sessions at um, at uh, at Hawthorne. Johnny Platton thought I should have been in the Olympic Games, given <laughs> he thought... <laughs> I was going up and down the 50, but I was just sort of, you know, a reasonable swimmer. But then I came back to Fremantle Dockers and I'd be lucky to get in the final. So yeah. I guess with the weather in, in WA, you, you get exposed to everything. And I, I did throw myself into everything. So I, I was in the state junior surf life saving team when I was younger. I played state water polo. Um, and all the, you know, I happened to live next door to Terry Gale. So I was thrown into golf at, a, at an early age as well. Um, and I actually think being exposed to so many diverse and different sports actually help in the end with footy because I think you do get you don't get jaded with you know getting thrown into into AFL or whatever at such an early age there's there's other avenues to um, to enjoy and I think when you do make a decision to go hard a particular sport I, I think you've enjoyed your your sporting junior life with your mates as as you grow up I think that's really important yeah it's a great lifestyle in that part of the country to grow up I'm sure and um, speaking of getting thrown into things at an early age Claremont then you went and you played there you played 
played seniors, I think, when you were 18, weren't you? Uh, and am I right in saying that the first 17 games you played at Claremont were all wins? You were 17 and zip? Yeah, well, it was a, yeah, it's just, it's just luck, isn't it, where you're drafted or where you're, where you're zoned to. It was just a, an outstanding um, team at, at the time. There was a bit of um, sort of luck with it as well because Jared Neesham had just been appointed at Claremont in, in 87. I played Colts the year before um, and yeah, I didn't make the Colts grand final team so Bruce Monteith was the coach and they, they went on to win so there were some great players in, in that team. I had a couple of injuries so there was a little bit of a, a chip on my shoulder there um, but I'd known Jared from my water polo days you know 10 years before that playing at the the same water polo club in WA, the Melbourne water polo club so we play A grade water polo together and he was coaching in the in the 18s in the 20s so I guess that helped a little bit because he understood me and our he understood our family and my personality and um, I just happened to be given a, a little bit of opportunity a few opportunities early in that 87 season and and got myself into the team but yeah you, you walk into the team and not I think we might have drawn a game that year but we didn't lose a game from round four or five from whenever I, I came in. Um, that was the year that Derek Kickett had, I think, the best individual year that I've ever been uh, from a teammate that I've ever sort of been associated with. He mm. won the Sandover medal by the, the length of the straight. And even though he was uh, ineligible because of a quite a sort of innocuous report, it was just unbelievable to, to play alongside him and um, just see what he was capable of doing. But yeah. it, was a, it was a great team. That, that We won the grand final quite comfortably, but it was a mix of some young guys. Guy McKenna was in the team, Don Pike was in the team, but they had we had some experienced guys that had been around AFL and Waffle for a long time, which obviously helped. Yeah. Isn't it funny the way the world works as well? Jared Neesham starts there when you start there, and then you, your paths cross again later on in Fremantle, which, which we'll get to. But that Claremont side, what a side some of the names you peel off and you wanted to get in 89 and personally three consecutive Simpson medals for you so we're going to get to Hawthorne shortly but you must have felt like you were more than ready to, to graduate if I can term it that way uh yeah I look I, I think it was the, the the way that it was kind of done maybe I was kind of the end of that that era that you you sort of entrench yourself in the waffle but um the guys before Wayne Blackwell or Morris Rioli, and all these famous West Australians that had Gary Buccanara to come across to to the to Melbourne to play. They'd all played 50, 100, 150 waffle games before they yeah. jumped on the plane. So um, that wasn't really foreign to me. I think it really helped playing against men and playing in a great Claremont team in three grand finals in a row was uh, a big advantage but in saying that I still there, there was still some massive adjustment stepping up into um, you know into the AFL so I really had to, to focus down and um, try and understand what I had to do to get into to the Hawthorne team but but having that background of yeah, th- three years, I think was was hugely important. And in actual fact, when I look at the young guys now getting thrown in, and there's a lot of pressure on early draft picks to play in their first year. I look at most of them. I mean, someone like Chris Judd going back a bit was obviously an exception, but most of them I think should be playing uh, in the mature age competition in the in the waffle mm. or the sandfall, and you know, or if they're not good mature enough to play reserves footy, I don't think there's any any issue with that but there seems to be pressure on to to get them in you're listening to this is your sporting life thanks to tobin brothers funerals a family-owned business since 1934 ben allen's move across the country to the mighty hawks is up next you're listening to this is your sporting life with sam edmund for tobin brothers funerals celebrating lives Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
it's great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with 1991 Hawthorne Premiership player and that year's best and fairest winner, Ben Allen. So, Ben, the move to Hawthorne, how did it actually come about that you would be playing for the Hawks? Well, you can't get fined from the AFL now, can you? So <laughs> I may tell a couple of stories, but um, it was funny because I, I did talk to a number of, of clubs and I was genuinely um, uh, rapt to be, to be coming across to Melbourne because when, when I was growing up yeah, there was no West Coast Eagles or Fremantle Dockers so there was no even thought of staying in WA so my dream was always to go to Melbourne to play and in all the thing that stood out about Hawthorne I must admit out of all the clubs that I spoke to the only coach that actually rang was Alan Jean and he rang and said look we you know we're interested in you know they'd done all the, the homework Alan Joyce was uh, the head of recruiting and I, I knew he'd been at a few Claremont games um, but when the the coach rings and a, and a legend like Alan Jean's ring, it makes so much more impact than, you know, if you are talking to a, you know, the head of recruiter of a, of a particular club. So it was a kind of a bit of a shock. But then my first sort of reaction was, well, how on earth, that's great, Alan, but how on earth am I going to sort of get into this team? They just won, you know, 88 by 16 goals and 89 that grand final. And I was in that 89 draft potentially. And he basically said, don't worry about it. We, you know, the recruiting guys think that, um, you know, they, they want to get you and uh, so just come across and back yourself in, which is what I did. But I guess there was there was a little bit of talk that I, I ended up, Hawthorne had the first, their first pick was pick 14. And I had spoken to a number of clubs who had picks before that. So without saying that I was doing anything prejudiced to the draft there was a few sort of stories floating around that I was you know a surfy dude and you know I didn't really care about football and who planted those well I I can't really say but maybe (laughs) my waffle coach might have at the time might have assisted in that regard but in the end you know you've got to be selfish and try and get to the club that you want to get to and and that's in fact what you know what we did so was West Coast ever a possibility I mean did you have any sort of affinity for them? I look, I, I definitely spoke to them, but it, it was um, it was not that I had anything against West Coast. It was just that, as I said before, it was more the fact that I did want to go to Melbourne and, and prove myself because that's what happened with all the guys that I looked up. You know, Ross Glendening, you mentioned before, he moved across after playing at East Perth to, to North Melbourne when he was probably 21 or t- 22. All the, you know, there was su- such a great history of WA players going across, Barry Cable and, you know, going back a bit and just, you know, Rod Lester Smith, it just goes on and on the, the amount of players that had successful uh, VFL slash AFL careers. So I just wanted to, to follow in those footsteps. So you get to Glenferry Oval then, Ben. I think you're 21 or thereabouts. So you, you're not a you're not a baby, but as you say, this is a club who's just won back to back premierships, and and you come in and there's names like Dunstall, Ayres, Platten. Dipper, Dermy. I mean, the names just roll off the page. Were they approachable? And moreover, were you willing to approach them? No, I didn't say a word for about 18 months. So um, I was, uh, yeah, very, you know, I was absolutely intimidated. So, but they were, um, they were very forthcoming in terms of, uh, you know, welcoming welcoming me in. I remember Gary Bacanara um, grabbing, grabbing me and just introduced me around the room when I first walked in. So that was that was great for him. Um, but they were absolutely fantastic. I kept on asking sort of, you know, Alan Joyce and Alan Jeans what the secrets were. And they basically were telling me there are no secrets. you just got to work your, your backside off. So that became soon apparent. But you mentioned all those absolute superstars. But I probably learnt more off 
um, I'm not saying they're not superstars, but guys that don't roll off the tongue when you when you have Dunstall and Brereton mm. in the first instance. But guys like Darren Pritchard, uh, guys like Andy Collins, uh, Anthony Condon, they were all unbelievable trainers and and uh, and and you know team mates. And they, as much as the absolute superstars of the team really showed the way um, and showed what you had to do to be, to be successful. So if you're alongside, you know, if you're teamed up, you know, against John Platten or Andy Collins or Darren Pritchard, it didn't matter. You, you knew you were in for a tough training afternoon. So yeah. I, I think that's important to recognise. It was the the really the the whole team had such a strong work ethic. And, and the other thing is when you get picked, there was only four guys drafted in. Four guys might have re- retired. Russell Green retired, for example. And I remember I was actually, Alan uh, Jean said, you've got to run. Uh, Russell Green was still involved with the club and he was doing the pre-season training. And he said, you've got to man up and go with Russell Green with every training session and just follow him, you know, and just try and learn as much as you can. And Russell Green, if you remember, was an absolute mm. freak of, a, of an athlete. I think he played 150 games at Hawthorne and 150 at St Kilda. So you can imagine what sort of a trading regime he had. And I would go home after the first few sessions and basically lie on the bed and, and, and pass out. I was that exhausted. Um, and thankfully, and I would say this, you know, sort of uh, not really meaning to say it, but thankfully he blew a an Achilles after about, 12 days of pre-season so <laughs> I wasn't allowed to be assigned with him anymore so the next person I get assigned to was Michael Tuck oh no and yeah and you can imagine the rude dog Michael Tuck running around he you know he was sort of 35 and I'm trying to run around with him at 21 keeping up and in that pre-season training Michael Tuck he said hello and goodbye but he didn't actually say anything at all in terms of the the training sessions but by just uh running with him learning you know when to go hard learning when to have a bit of relax and sort of seeing what he did for the full 12 weeks of the pre-season I learned more in that 12 week block than I did in any other time in my career just trying to imitate him and so imagine with all this getting your games obviously the big the first and the biggest challenge you, you break through I think your debut's round 7 1990 and it's Collingwood at Waverley Park so just a small game for you there to start off with <laughs> you have seven disposals yeah, think... and you kick it behind it's a two point win though so what, what are your memories like of, of that afternoon oh, I remember it was a big crowd you know I think it was 60 or 65,000 so Collingwood yeah obviously went on to win the flag that year so they have a, a very strong team yeah I it, it was I was thinking, how how on earth am I going to, you know, get into this team? It was such as, you know, they've gone back to back for, for goodness sake, and I've rocked in trying to knock off whoever out out of the centre or out of out of the forward line. So uh, I guess what happened was my my running um, sort of fitness level just wasn't at the standard. Hawthorne were playing at Waverley, the biggest ground in the history of football, and if you didn't have your um, your running legs and your fitness capabilities on, well, you just couldn't last the, the distance. So it, it basically took me a year to understand what I had to do to get my running fitness, fitness up. Um, and it's probably not what the, the recruiting officer or the coach wants to hear after recruiting a, you know, a guy that's been playing waffle for three years and at, at 21. But to be honest, that was the, the fact of the matter. So um, I was kind of in and out of that year. I think I played yeah six or seven games and got three times and got got dropped for the for the last final. But it was a massive learning um, year. It, it went r- ridiculously uh, quickly. I felt like I was under the spotlight every training session, which um, 
which really carried through for the rest of the career, uh, career with me because there was only four guys picked up. And Alan Jeans, his philosophy was, I've got to get these four recruits up to the level of the, the premiership side from the, from the year before. So he didn't have to worry about Pritchard and, and Condon and Anderson and, you know, and, and Paul Deere and all those guys because they knew what they were capable, they knew what they had to do. But I had to get the, the, the draftees up to, to, to their level. So every training session, I felt like, and it was fact, that Alan Jeans was just watching me. So you know when you rock up one day and you, you, know, you, you might have had a, a bad day at whatever, had a fight with your girlfriend or you just having, and you just can't be bothered training. But there are days that Alan Jeans is screaming at you at the top of his lungs on that tiny Glen Ferry Oval uh, pitch. And, and he's, it felt like he was, I was the only one training. And it was wasn't like that for one week or one session. It was like from from the first session in preseason right to the end. So that was his coaching philosophy. It absolutely worked. Whenever I started slowing down or wanting to slack off, he would be watching and be and be barking instructions at me. So, um, and he, I saw him a couple of years years later. I must admit, and he he basically said, "Do you hear my voice when I'm training?" And and he was right because I do. Whenever I felt myself slowing down or slacking or, or wanting to take a bit of a break, I could hear that that voice of his uh, in the back of my head, just pushing myself to to not slow down and you know and and try and get my fitness to that to that next level. So the first year was tough, um, but then once I'd learnt the the Hawthorne way in a sense I had the biggest pre-season when I came back to Perth um you know for the for the break so when I went back um for the start of 91 I was I was ready to go and tell us about 91 which must live on as an absolute dream for you I mean you play every game I think the team's 19 and 6 by the end of it you roll west coast in the grand final back at Waverley and Unfortunately, that game lives on as much thanks to the angry Anderson and, and the Batmobile performance. But but the the year and the game itself, and then to be crowned the best and fairest, which is always special, uh, and amongst I guess the ultimate footy achievements for a player, must must live on really proudly with you. Yeah, well, that that, that was a, obviously a fan, fantastic year. It was it was interesting because when I I got some goes in the in the Fosters Cup in the preseason, I was playing forward pocket or half forward, and you're probably asking yourself what's the what's the worst position in the history of AFL to play, and I'd say forward pocket in Hawthorne when Jason Dunstall's at full forward because <laughs> you might be on by 20 meters, and you know they don't people just don't look left and right; they look for the big number 19, which is fine. So. I was occasionally getting a crumb when Dunstall, you know, potentially dropped a mark, which wasn't too, wasn't too often. And I kind of found myself a role in that forward pocket, um, half forward in the first couple of games. And then, if you remember, we played Adelaide in the round one, Adelaide's first ever game in the in the mm. in the history and they were absolutely on fire and even though we'd won the Fosters Cup which is a big thing back in those days the pre-season competition Hawthorne wanted to win it each year um and we got rolled by I think it was it was a massive margin 10 goals you know so the premiers get rolled in round round one uh, by the newcomers by, by a massive net so there was a few tweaking I think I had the confidence in in Alan Joyce at the time, who was who had replaced uh, Jeansy as the coach in terms of my fitness level. So early in the year, might have been round two, might have been round three, I started getting um, run with roles in the midfield, which again that was intimidating. But I thought, well, hang on, if I do this, okay, at least I've got a, a spot in the team. So I was running with you know Robert Harvey, and I was running with Greg Williams, and I was running with uh, Gary Hocking. You can imagine the players, you know, you're sort of playing within against in the midfield, um, and I was. 
I was doing okay. My, initially, it was a it was a shutdown roll, a tag, but I started to develop some confidence, and I knew if I got the ball in my hands that I could, you know, potentially do something decent with it so even though my expectation early was just to maybe get three or four touches a quarter um, that slowly built up and 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 my as my confidence grew in the end I was actually the one getting tagged from uh, sort of two-thirds of the way through the year mm. two-thirds of the way through the year so the game had developed so it was interesting it was brilliant being involved in uh, you know such a such a strong side I think there was some, you know, guys like Andy Gowers and Stevie Lawrence had come into the team and sort of rejuvenated a couple of spots there. And, uh, you know, Dermot was in there hanging on towards the end and there was, you know, Dunster was still at his prime. So, yeah, it was a great a, a great team to be a part of. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life and it's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can find them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. Up next, Ben Allen makes the big decision to return west and become a doctor. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with the inaugural Fremantle Dockers captain, Ben Allen. So, Ben, the AFL announced in December 93 that a team would be based out of Fremantle starting in the 1995 season and beyond. You're obviously at Hawthorne. When did Fremantle first reach out to you to gauge your interest in coming back? Um... That's a good question. Probably halfway through the the '94 year, I, I think. Given that Jared was involved, there was sort of a um, a couple of so, you know sort of subtle conversations, but nothing too dramatic. And to, to be honest, it really just cranked up when when Hawthorne had played that last game in in the '94 season. So, did West Coast ever make an approach during your time at the Hawks, Ben, or not? Uh not not really. Um, there might have been a couple, but I don't think it was anything that was too um, too sort of serious. I was look, I loved Hawthorne. <laughs> it was I would mm. I wanted to stay there forever, and that was the the school of thought. But I knew deep down that um, I mean Hawthorne were going through a couple of issues. They had some financial problems at the time. You know, Dermot was leaving. Tony Hall left. Andy Andy Gowers left. So there were, there were kind of a few issues there. Um, but I knew deep down in my in my gut that this was an absolute one-off opportunity. I had some affiliation with with Fremantle because my grandfather was actually the vice president of South Fremantle in the in the early 80s. Mm. So we're all you know South Fremantle supporters. So there was that that pull to, to come across. So I, I don't think I would have even contemplating leaving. Um, for any other side apart from one that was set up in Frio. So that was the main pull to come back. Yeah, and your old Claremont coach, Jared Neesham, is obviously the inaugural coach as well, which which helps. And, and that initial squad, I mean, you join it. You're the only former All-Australian in it, the only best and fairest winner in it, one of only two to have won a premiership in it. You were clearly the most experienced in it. What are your memories of that 50-man squad initially? And was it just privately for you, was it low expectations early on? Um, not, not really. It was low expectation by the footy world because you looked at that 
50-man squad, whatever it is, end up being, you know, in the 40s and you think, who are these people? But I was comforted by the fact that Jared and the assistant coaches had watched a lot of these guys in the waffle um, for, you know, the last 18 months and there were some unbelievably talented young lads in the lads in the side. Also, the, the experienced guys that did come back, Stephen O'Reilly, uh, Peter Mann, Scotty Waters, they, they played fantastic roles in... Spider Burton was involved, uh, fantastic roles in in getting the team up and going. And also, I think the team got a hell of a lot of confidence in the way that we trained. It was slightly left of centre in terms of what are the, a couple of the things that Jared <laughs> um, was trying to incorporate. There was a lot of run and carry at the time. There was a lot of blocking sort of off the ball to allow that, that person who was... Uh, running, carrying the footy to, you know, to progress forward. Um, and that caught a few teams off guard. Um, not the great teams, but a, a few sort of teams. And if you think about the thing I guess that I'm most proud of is subsequently when you see the conditions that occurred when GWS and Gold Coast entered the competition, the draft concessions, you know, we know how uh, unbelievably aggressive they all work. And you compare it to what happened with uh, with uh, Fremantle back in 94, it's absolutely stark. So it was really built with it from a team from from the waffle, to be honest, w- with that filtering of those experienced guys that I talked about. But the first three years are probably you know the most proud sort of three years that I've been associated with in terms of playing. To to come away with eight wins, seven wins, and ten wins in the first three years, when you can, especially now in hindsight, compared to what. Gold Coast and GWS achieved in terms of their win loss. Yeah, and I'd say that that first initial start up, the three years was was unbelievably not unbelievably successful, but definitely successful and was set up for the you know set the club up in the right manner. I'm glad you raised it because I was really looking forward to asking you about the game style that you would have come face to face with in the preseason and that was obviously later unveiled to the footy world because it was revolutionary. Now, am I right in saying that it came from his water polo water polo background, Jared Neesham? And I think David Parkin later called it, uh, said it was ahead of its time. It was so unusual at the time. It was all about running the ball, wasn't it? And um, more more flair and an exciting game style than what any other club had tried to adopt? Well, I think he recruited specific players who could run carry. I mean, Scotty Chisholm, if you remember at the time, yeah. had a great year. I think, I think, believe it or not, he was winning the Brownlow medal at the halfway mark of the uh, the 95 season. Dale Kickett had an unbelievable career at, at Fremantle as well as a couple of other clubs, but he was really aggressive in, in his run and carry. Uh, you know, Leachy was down there, uh, you know, in the half-back line. So it was, it was a little bit different um there were some tactics i think had been you know come from from water polo background but the main thing um i think was when you're playing footy the the main thing is that you're concerned about is actually getting on the end of the of, of possession and getting the football so it was actually a real um change in mindset when your teammates got the ball is not to call for it in terms of gathering to you know get another possession but it's your role to actually block for that teammate and that became the real, we, we trained it, we, tra- we trained it every session, it was probably 15 minutes of block and carry at the start of every session, so you didn't want to say that that was the, you know, the, the absolute main ethos of, of the game style, because in the end you've actually got to go in and win the footy and, and dish it out at some stage, but in terms of when the ball was in um, open space and when it's uh, deep in defence, you knew you had a real chance of attacking, even though you're, you're in the back line, so the mindset of of blocking for your teammate and also running away from the ball carrier to allow 
the guy that had the footy to run into space. You can't just sort of snap your fingers and do that automatically. It had to be had to be trained and had to be coached. And once I think there was, you know, a fifteen week block of, of training at every every session, there was real confidence in the group. So um, even though we didn't have those names, there were you know, Winston Abraham was was playing in the team and had a great year. And he he was probably I know this is a big call, but in terms of raw football ability and I say this because I know I played alongside Darren Jarman and, and some absolute greats, but I don't think Winston had. I think I had have him at the top of the tree in terms of raw football ability. You know, above everyone. So he had guys like that in the team. So it was a you know an unbelievably exciting. And that you know that's why even though it was a a team of no names in a sense to win eight games in the in your first year was a was a good effort. Mm, still remember that Mark Winston Abraham took in Canberra that year it was absolutely unbelievable. Now you had to wait Ben until round fifteen to play Hawthorne when you become a Fremantle docker. These days the AFL would schedule that on a Friday night of round one. <laughs> that must have been a long wait, I'd imagine. Long wait, and I don't think it was really worth the wait from my point of view. If you haven't got my stats there, I probably got dragged and, uh, yeah, it wasn't great. I, I was a bit of a... I didn't cope with it very well, I've got to say. There was no... You know, I think the you know the modern players, if they, you know, they're coming up against the team that they've been involved with, would get some sort of coaching, but it was like, uh, you know, you're out there and sort of, uh, you know, do what you can. But, um, no, I didn't cope with it emotionally. I remember talking to the coaching staff afterwards and I, I felt like I'd let Fremantle down in terms of the way that I played. Um, and I basically said that, you know, the, the event got the better of me and it'll never happen again. And it didn't happen again too often because I kind of, my body sort of fell over not too long after that anyway. Well, we'll get to that. I wanted to save that dark <laughs> stuff until later on. We're talking to Ben Allen on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back with Ben after this. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Ben Allen is our guest today. Now, Ben, you obviously played in some huge, massive games at Hawthorne, but you also played in the inaugural Western Derby. And another piece of history there for you. What was the build-up to that like? And the city of, of Perth must have been jumping. Yeah, it was a bit out of control. And I, and I guess... I, I must admit, and I don't want to sort of downplay it, but for West Coast for me were just another team. I'd gone and played at Hawthorne, obviously. We played West Coast in grand final. We played them in some big finals um, at, at Subi and, you know, obviously played them for, for three or four years. So for me, it wasn't a big thing. I only realised afterwards that all these young Docker players, well, not all of them, but most of the Docker young players that we recruited, they'd grown up idolising this West Coast Eagles team. Mm. So... Um, there was a bit of sort of intimidation there in terms of, uh, you know, the big brother and the little brother. So whilst I was kind of down playing it during the week, you know, because I generally believed, you know, West Coast are another game, I don't think the rest of my teammates actually believed that. And certainly the rest of the WA population didn't believe that because it was a big thing. You're asking a young waffle side essentially to come up against the reigning premier and expect a result that wasn't a you know quite a comprehensive victory from West Coast in the first few times that we played. That that was always going to happen. I remember when I was uh, sort of involved in the development coach in '98, and they were always talking about oh, I've got always got to be two Western Derbies and. 
you know, two Collingwood and Carlton games and, and all the rest of it. I was thinking, why the hell do you want to pitch two Western Derbies um, against a young developing side? It's sort of, uh, you know, there's no way you're going to be able to take them on and, and beat them when they're at, when they're at their absolute strength. So yeah, it was massive. Um, uh, but I yeah, I, from a captaincy point of view, which I was in the first couple, I, I if I had my time again, I would have approached it a lot differently and realised it was an emotional game for most of the, the young lads in the team. There's a cracking old YouTube clip of a young Bruce McAvaney crossing to a fresh-faced Ben Allen in his civvies, and alongside you is a formal, suited-up, bespectacled John Worsfold in the beat build-up to this game, and it was an amazing, I guess that big brother, little brother, does it still exist, do you think, Ben, now, or is it faded? That's a good, that's a good question. I, I think I think not. I think Fremantle, um, in their own right, have become a, you know, a really sort of valued member of the the AFL community, whether that sort of resonated with the, with Ross Lyon and Nat Fife leading the and Matthew Pavlich leading the team into the grand final a few years ago and sort of you know standing up on their own two feet I think I think from that point in time you could say that um, you know Frio are alongside so I don't think the big brother little brother thing kind mm. of exists there's, but there is still a fierce and I think there always will be a, you know a fierce rivalry but between the two sides Injuries got to you in 96 what happened? My knee just sort of stopped working. I got to say, um, I, yeah, I, I had um, I had three sort of minor knee surgeries, just sort of clean up operations prior to, to going to Hawthorne. So my first one was eighteen, then I had one nineteen and twenty, just little clean ups. But um, I think deep down my heart of hearts, I I knew I wasn't going to be playing like David Mundy or Michael Tuck. I, I you know if I got to late twenties, I, I think I knew that was going to be my spot. Um, I, hand on heart, I think I did everything in terms of preparation and recovery to, you know, to get the most out of however many games that, that I did play. But I knew one day, I, I guess that's why I got my accounting degree because I knew one day I'd uh, get the tap on the shoulder and saying, uh, you know, enough's enough. So yeah. it wasn't all that surprising, but um, I did get to the start. Yeah, so it was basically bone on bone in, in you know, probably both my knees, to be honest. But um, so it got difficult to be, to have any real mo- mobility, which for a midfielder is a bit of a bit po- problematic. So yeah. um, I yeah. had to finish there whenever it was in my late 20s. Yeah, it's a shame. 29, I think, and 145 games to, to remind you. And, and 97, you relinquished the captaincy to, to Peter Mann, who I know you, you rated, of course, and um, but that would have hurt you. And, and then to retire at the end of that year is, uh, as I say, gone far too soon. You stayed on as an assistant at Fremantle under Jared Nation, but in 98, that was Jared's last year in charge. And what happened here? When he moved on, am I right in saying, Ben, that you tendered your resignation pending the appointment of a replacement, but you, you had every intention of hanging around, didn't you? I did, yeah. I, I thought I... Um, so I really enjoyed... I was kind of the I was the first development coach for Fremantle in 98, so I worked with the, the young guys in the midfield, and I think I probably, in my heart of hearts, still wanted to hang around and try and assist Fremantle become as successful as they were, hadn't having not reached the finals when I was playing in those three years. Um but then, yeah, Jared got that great contract that every coach wants, a one-year contract. So he was under the pump from the start of 98. And then he got told he wasn't going to be appointed again. So I thought, OK, well, I'll just resign. And I didn't want to be sitting there with the new coach coming in and, you know, sort of being um, part of the team automatically without the new coach coming in and, and having a decision to, to bring in who he wanted. So I applied for the, the, the new role, the, the role with Damien Drubb. And he went with other with other guys, his own team, which is exactly what you wanted to happen with a new coach coming.
coming in, so that was fine. You described it at the time, though, as a real kick in the teeth and actually said it was a huge decision to leave Hawthorne and, and you said um, it seemed everything had gone sour since. I mean, initially, was there some anger that you couldn't hang around under, under Damien Drum? Yeah, there would have been some natural anger, yes, of course. So that was probably my immature um, <laughs> comments at the time. So you know, that's fair enough. I And... I've, that's just the way it was. Mm. But I, I thought it was the right decision to say, look, let, let's uh, let's get Drummy. I want to have a chat with Drummy, but um, yeah, I probably went a bit overboard in, in hindsight, mate, in those days. Oh. But uh, I was, yeah, that's what happens. We never begrudge honesty on this side of the fence, Ben. Now, the great <laughs> irony, of course, is that three years later, you're called on as the caretaker to replace Damien Drum because he was unfortunately sacked. It was the 10th consecutive loss at the time. It was a pretty bad loss, I think, to the Sydney Swans at the at the SCG round nine, 2001. So you assume the job, and I think the side might have even lost its first 17 games that year. So difficult times. But the irony, again, you get a breakthrough win in charge uh, with you as coach. <laughs> And it came against Hawthorne of all clubs in round 18. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, I think, uh, look, it was a difficult time. I just, If anyone's asked to be a caretaker coach out there for 13 weeks, just give me a ring and I'll talk you out of it. It's the longest 13 weeks in the history oh, of the world. But, um, yeah, I was asked to do it, so I, I did it, so, which is fine. That The club was at it. In terms of confidence in the players, they were at a really ridiculously low ebb. So, I, you know, getting that win against Hawthorne, and I think we beat Adelaide in round in, in the last round last of the round. year. Yep. And, yeah, and both those teams played finals. So that showed to me there was absolute potential in, in the group. I remember the, the Hawthorne game because Peter Bell was going head-to-head with Shane Crawford in the middle of the ground. I think they probably had... 20, 25 disposals at half time. Hawthorne were well in front. I think they might have got to 40 points up. And thankfully, I don't, sorry to say this, Shane, but I'm really glad that you did your hamstring um, and didn't come on after half time because Peter Bell ended up having 45 and we got across the line. So that was a <laughs> that was a great win. And funnily enough, Justin Longmuir, I reckon you've probably got the stats, but I reckon he kicked five or six from full forward and really stamped himself as a as an unbelievably talented key forward. Yeah, you never viewed this caretaker role as an audition though did you? you you never had sort of serious ambitions to be a senior coach am I right in saying that I I didn't know because I was actually really enjoying what I was uh, you know doing outside of footy you know in the in the wine game and working in the, in the family business and um, I, I guess I was fortunate that I was passionate about footy but I found another passion outside of footy and uh, you know in terms of the work life and that that's really important so um, and to yeah if I had any sort of considerations of coaching it was it was absolutely uh, ticked off the or crossed off the bucket list after the caretaker role because that really didn't head in 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 the end I think what actually happens you're as a head coach I know you can do, do everything in terms of your preparation but in the end you've got your your week and really your life is in the hands of 22 other people in terms of how they pair a game and I, I think that's what made it difficult for me to be, get really passionate about it I was really self-consumed when I was preparing as a, as a player and doing everything I could and knowing that if I did A, B and C you know, during the week I'd be okay on, on sort of game day and letting that go and uh, putting all your faith in 22 players was yeah, div- a little bit difficult for me to get my head around. Yeah, that's what causes the hair loss I reckon. And you, you mentioned <laughs> you mentioned Justin Longmuir there. I mean, before we let you go, what have you made of the new start at Fremantle under him? And at the time of talking, we're talking uh, about 24 hours after uh, Adam Chera's put in a 
trade request to leave the club. So twofold question, how do you think they're going and what effect do you think that will have? Well, if you ask me after the Derby win a week ago, I'd say we, everything's absolutely on track and they're going well. I think Justin's doing a great job. I, I really do think he's got a firm understanding of where the group's at, and I, I think he's showing he's a you know a modern coach in terms of his uh, his game style, but also his communication with his players. That's feedback that I kind of get fourth or fifth hand that he's doing a great job. Yeah, the Cherim one's disappointing because you think about it, he's 21 and he's had three years and he's going across and someone's going to get the best of his footy. And when you think about it, what we talked about at the start, I was 21 when I went across for the first time. He's had three years of AFL development. So it's Mm. interesting in the last 25 years how all that's changed. I know that the club will be pretty aggressive in seeking, um, you know, a a pretty aggressive trade. When you look at a a few of the players that have changed clubs, high-ish profile players over the last few years they have sort of got two number one draft picks potentially over two years so I think that's sort of what the uh, the baseline trade will will be at which is a, a big call for a club to give up two number one or two first round picks but I think that's what that'll be the starting point. Hey Ben it's been a pleasure to catch up today I mean injury as we said robbed you and those who love watching you play from a longer career but what it lacked in longevity it made up for in quality best and fairest in a premiership year you sit comfortably in the WA Hall of Fame of course and will always be remembered as Fremantle's inaugural captain. Well done on all you achieved. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. I'm glad you got a good memory and could could go back that far. I've enjoyed it. (laughs) And thank you for joining (laughs) us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Sporting Life. All thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate the life of another sporting icon. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.